0: Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at americanbrainfoundation.org. The Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at norellis.com.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servan, a neurologist who practices at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. This is What's Health Got to Do With It, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up are February health headlines in about 60 seconds. Then our monthly medical roundtable for February. Here are your February health headlines in about a minute. The Biden administration plans to let the coronavirus public health emergency expire on May 11th. The change most Americans will notice is an end to free COVID care, starting with testing. Eventually, people will also have to start forking over money for COVID vaccines and treatments like Paxlovid. Not immediately though, the federal government still has a supply of Paxlovid and COVID vaccines on hand as a result of its pandemic response. On February 12th, New York state officials allowed COVID-19 related masking requirements for staff and visitors in hospitals and other healthcare facilities to lapse. Acting Health Commissioner Dr. James McDonald said that while the pandemic is not over, we are moving to a transition. The decision announced comes as governments continue to relax rules enacted during the most intense days of the pandemic. Earlier that same week, New York City announced it would no longer require COVID-19 vaccinations for police, firefighters, teachers, and other municipal employees. On February 11th, Rihanna gave an amazing performance at the Super Bowl halftime show while pregnant. A first. Ironically, A landmark study showed that in the U.S., the richest mothers and their newborns are the most likely to survive the year after childbirth, except when the family is black, according to a groundbreaking new study of two million California births. The richest black mothers and their babies are twice as likely to die as the richest white mothers and their babies. Those are some of your health headlines in about a minute. Joining us today to add perspective and dive into these headlines on our February health headlines are Dr. Joseph Draskowski. He's a practicing neurologist and a professor of neurology at Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. Dr. Draskowski, welcome back.
2: Well, thank you very much. Always honored to be here.
1: It's great to have you. Dr. Daker Knight, he's in studio with us today. He's an internist at Mayo Clinic in Florida and head of the Ellers danlos Clinic there. Dr. Knight, welcome as always. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. Great to have you back. And another veteran, Dr. Chad Nielsen, he's Director of Accreditation and Infection Prevention at University of Florida Health Jacksonville. Chad, welcome back.
3: Thank you for having me. It's a joy
1: as always. Always love having you guys around with us. Let's start where we have started almost every show, every month, and that's on the COVID pandemic. Now, after more than three years, Johns Hopkins University will stop updating its COVID tracker on March 10th as the country has moved into a different stage of the pandemic with a different data flow set. The online dashboard is a $13 million project that's been viewed over 2.5 billion times. Dr. Knight, I remember checking that dashboard since the day this pandemic started. I almost checked it more than the CDC. What does it mean that they're sunsetting something that was literally synonymous with COVID data?
4: Well, it must be the end of the pandemic, right? So. (laughs) But it is a really exceptional tool, and I I agree. I I, had used that quite a lot. It it was incredible just to imagine the the productivity that went into that and and the use that came out of it. Uh, So, yeah, so so what does this mean? And I think, as you mentioned, we've been talking about the pandemic and COVID-19 to no end, and is there really going to be an end where we stop talking about it? I think we've known this for some time that, There, As much as we want to look at a single variable and say, oh, that's it, there really is not one specific thing that we can look at. It is more of a gradual uh, progression of us getting back into normal life. And and I think that has started and it has continued. and, And just like any other... epidemics, the HIV-AIDS epidemic, there was just kind of a a gradual discontinuation of concern. And and while there's been continued research, you know, life expectancy of someone with AIDS is comparable to most developed nations now, which is fantastic. So we have treatments and vaccines for COVID-19, which is fantastic as well. So I think, you know, we do like to celebrate things. We, we, our family just celebrated Fat Tuesday last night, Mardi <laughs> yes. Gras, and, and we would love to have another celebration for the end of the pandemic. But I don't know if we'll get a specific date. But anyway, it just it's great to see that, that these things are uh, were coming to, to pass and we're getting back to more uh, normal life.
1: Dr. Driskowski, what does it tell you about our health system that a private university, albeit a well-known one, provided the comprehensive data we relied upon and not the CDC?
2: Well, I think, I think it's, it's, it's a challenging question. And, it, and it's, I think there's been a lot of, how should I say, there's been some exposure that's been for the CDC on this topic. You know, they, they were founded after World War II to provide data and to battle against uh diseases from all uh, all all over the world and you know i think this the rapidity and the how severe this this covid crisis was it exposed some weaknesses and i think th- they'll they're honest with you dr wolanski who runs the cdc you know admitted that in a in a bit of a, a discussion in late december and described Difficulties with uh, local jurisdictions reporting things, and and uh, other difficulties to get a to get a central data collection. So thank goodness, there was this um, kind of a hybrid system, if you will, from Johns Hopkins University to do this. Like like most of us on this panel, uh, we use this we use this every day. If you know, not every hour, to sometimes track things with the uh, with the COVID pandemic. So I, I think there's room to improve but you know it was it was sure nice to have this uh, particular tool around when in the middle of this
1: crisis. Chad how will we know if we're in trouble again with COVID?
3: Yeah it's going to be more difficult certainly with more and more dashboards uh, that are being provided by universities or other health research agencies are or, or going offline or being turned off. The general public will really have to rely on their local and state health departments for information about COVID cases and and the ongoing pandemic. Uh, But unless the general public's adept at navigating government websites or abstracting data from those websites, it's going to be difficult for them. Um, This is where the media can can really play an important role, local media especially, as they can often gather that information from these state agencies either through FOIA requests or Freedom of of Information Act requests, Um, and they can get that data that maybe the public can't get to so easily uh, and and then present it to the general public through the news. Um, In healthcare, Uh, I think it's incumbent upon us to really pay attention to hospital admission data, laboratory reporting, and just general microbiology trends. Uh, But it's not going to be as easy moving forward.
1: Let's move to a different topic that we'll, we'll be living with, which is as the pandemic ends, we're going to be talking about vaccine drug pricing. Now, Moderna CEO told the Wall Street Journal last month he was considering quadrupling the price of Moderna's vaccine to as much as one hundred thirty dollars per dose. Once the federal government drains its stockpile and insurers and individuals are responsible for buying their own. Meanwhile, Pfizer's considering pricing its vaccine between $110 and $130 on the commercial market per dose. Now, a company spokeswoman said the U.S. residents, without insurance, will be able to access the vaccine for free through a patient assistance program, details which are slowly coming out at this time. So, Dr. Knight, it's an opinion question and you can answer it any way you want. Is Moderna right to do this, or are we missing something?
4: Yeah, I'll have to take off my doctor hat for this one, I think, and just put on my observer, my casual observer hat. And 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 to see what's going on, I mean, that the vaccines are, have been such a boon to the care of so many patients and really just getting us out of this mess. That uh, to think that there might be anything, any other obstacles to getting them would just be, it was it's just difficult to swallow. Having said that, it is good, as you pointed out, that there are these assistance programs for those who don't have insurance that they can be covered for free. That, that's, you know, the price increase could limit uh, those, the availability to some of those. Uh, And then, you know, is there another side to this, too? And and as we've experienced with our family, too, that there's just inflation going on, the price of eggs and everything else. So we just put vaccines in that bucket, too, just rising prices. But, um, you know, I think when it comes down to it is that that. Technology itself, it's, it's something, and there's been other kind of comparisons. Jonas Salk's vaccine, the creativity and the, the cortisol in, invention that we see those patents either being given away or sold because those who made those discoveries just essentially said that this is just knowledge that, is, that is, should be available to just about anyone and everyone who could be affected, which, as we know from the pandemic, is global.
1: Yeah, it's, it's one of those difficult uh, questions for sure. Dr. Draskowski. do patient assistance program work?
2: Being in neurology, we have a lot of small orphan drugs that we have to deal with, you know, for rare diseases. Um, you know, new medicines come out, you know, considering that 46 million Americans do not have health insurance and a lot of those patients still need ongoing care. You know, eight of 10 of those 46 million are working class families. They, they do work. Uh, they, they tend to work, but they are clunky you know, you have to have the right diagnosis, you have to have the right uh, information to the insurance company that uh, patients and families often need help with that. Uh, Proof of insurance coverage is also required. So once once they're in place, they tend to work. But getting to that position is a challenge. You know, elderly patients, a third of them don't have health care coverage, you know, health care prescription coverage. So, I mean, you you have to have systems in place within the practice within my own practice to have to to apply for these things and and it requires a special expertise they can work but they're clunky and they're not a perfect solution for many many families but you know i'm i'm thankful that they're there and in place uh you know when they're needed and it can be life-saving for patients so yeah overall positive but you know with some caveats
1: Chad, uh, as a level of comparison, uh, I can go to a local Walmart or a Target and I can get the flu vaccine for, for literally nothing uh, or pretty close to it. Why is a flu vaccine so cheap and <laughs> the prices that Moderna and Pfizer are talking about sounding a lot more expensive?
3: Yeah, so it's a variety of factors that that bring that price for the flu vaccine down. So number one, uh, really we're talking economy of scale. The the flu vaccine has been around since the 1940s. And at this point, uh, it's produced using very well established methods that are relatively uh, efficient. And so because we've been doing it and companies have been doing it for so long, it's really uh, brought that price down uh, virtually because of the massive amount of quantities of flu vaccine that that are created every year and that the public really demands. So there's additionally about a dozen companies worldwide that make the flu vaccine. So there's, uh, there's market competition. So we're really just talking about typical supply and demand, well-established uh, protocols to create it, and a lot of companies that do it. So uh, the last part of that is that the public health entities across the world, whether that's World Health Organization or national governments, uh, they do often subsidize the cost of flu vaccines, and they can negotiate those lower prices for the flu vaccine uh, in order to provide to their health departments or whatever their infrastructure is. So um, it's one of those things that I think as time goes on and as MRNA technology continues to to evolve and develop in more and more companies. Uh, find profitability out of it, I think it's going to lead to some competition in the market and that COVID vaccine price should come down.
1: Let's switch a topic to the actual end of COVID pandemic emergency, the policy perspective. On May 11th, the end of the pandemic health emergency is coming. And after that, depending on their insurance status, people have to pay some or part of the cost of both at-home tests, as well as a more comprehensive and accurate COVID test conducted at doctor's offices. This means that eventually people will have to start forking over money for COVID vaccines and treatments like Paxlovid. Uh, Dr. Knight, do you think people get the vaccine?
4: Well, my primary care just recommended it to me recently again, and that was, uh, it's been a little while now, but it, it is a good recommendation by any primary care if they're doing their job to make sure that everyone is updated on not only COVID, but all of their immunization schedules. So I think with the encouragement of a good health support system, then yes, people will get it. Um, now, we know there's lots of people out there in the world that don't have access to primary care, unfortunately. So the messaging that can be given you know, here on the show or elsewhere that patients should get these vaccines so we can avoid any further issues as far as infections and transmissions go, that's a very important thing.
1: To all of our listeners out there, you're listening to what's health got to do with it on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servan, And if you're just joining us, it's our monthly medical roundtable. And we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at jservan. Chad, do you expect COVID cases to rise as a result of the end of these pandemic measures? Or do you think they're just completely disconnected?
3: Well, COVID-19 cases rising and falling are really a factor of several things, including uh, the transmissibility of whatever the latest variant is, but as well as people's COVID immune status. So if we have uninsured or underinsured individuals um, not being able to get cheap vaccinations, for instance, uh, they could be more vulnerable, not only to getting an infection by COVID, but also at risk for severe illness and potentially hospitalization if they can't afford treatments. So without free home testing, then individuals who are sick, uh, may just forego to buy a test if they can't afford it or they can't get to it. Uh, and perhaps they think it's just another cold and they move on with their day and they start spreading it to others. So, uh, really the unfortunate truth is continues to be that those who are underinsured or uninsured are likely to suffer the brunt of these changes. And when we take away, um, Free testing or affordable treatment—we uh, we could be looking at uh, some implications for the pandemic to continue.
1: Dr. Driskauski, do you think Paxlovid uh, will be used once people are paying for it?
2: That's a challenging question.
1: It's always it's always a price
2: point issue. You know, first of all, you have to test positive for the for the te- for the for the co- for the disease, and then. Whether or not you have any risk factors for it, if you're in one of the high-risk groups, I think people who have those and know those are motivated to do so. But again, it depends on you know if the cost is several hundred dollars to to do the medication. I think a lot of people will forego it. So you know if we really want to if we really want to make a dent and 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 make this something that people will access and will use for their own good. it it needs to be it needs to be affordable for sure so you know again the people i think who are on high risk they'll be willing to pay that price Whereas other people as it was mentioned recently in one of the other discussions that um you know people who don't who don't feel badly they may not take it so uh i i think it's a mixed bag and and, and it will depend on price it will depend on access and it will depend on comorbidities so
1: yeah so Maybe, maybe not. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, Let's switch the topic a little, and that is to another infection, and that is seasonal norovirus. Now, the rate of norovirus tests are coming back positive, has exceeded 15% at the end of the last week in February. Now, that's the highest recorded since late March of 2022 norovirus is a highly contagious virus that typically causes symptoms such as diarrhea vomiting nausea and stomach pain and mild fever and aches are possible too Uh, chad we often hear about norovirus uh, throughout the year can you tell us what is this
3: yeah so norovirus as you said it's a highly contagious uh, gastroenteritis uh, causing virus Um, That is typically very common. We find it a lot in crowded environments like homes during the winter time, uh, but also uh, non-seasonally like cruise ships, nursing homes, daycares, uh, primary, secondary colleges, uh, and schools and things like that. Uh, It typically is spread by contaminated food, water, uh, or close contact with an infected person, or by even touching, or in some cases, breathing in contaminated surfaces that have the virus. Uh, the symptoms of neuro, um, you know, they typically appear within 12 to 48 hours of exposure, include all the symptoms you suggested. And then, really, it, it tends to be self limiting for most people one to three days. But I, I will tell you, it will be the most miserable one to three days of your life if you get norovirus.
1: Dr. Knight, uh, a lot of people get, mistake this with the flu. Uh, I, we just heard Chad give a nice description. Does this relate to the flu at all? Well,
4: they're both viruses. So specifically speaking, by classification, flu is caused by influenza virus, influenza A and B. So influenza is separate, separate virus than norovirus. Uh, It, I think, does get the common association of stomach flu, for example, uh, when we're talking about the nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, et cetera. Uh, But by classification terms, this is separate from influenza.
1: Let's switch uh, to yet another topic and one that seems uh, to come up uh, fairly frequently, uh, and that is having to do with the avian flu. Uh, We have all seen egg prices spiking. 58 million poultry have died in the U.S. And the World Health Organization Director General said on Wednesday that avian influenza spillover to mammal species must be monitored closely but that the risk to humans remained low for the moment. Chad, can you help us out uh, with avian flu? And is this different from what a human would get?
3: Yeah, so avian flu, which is also known as bird flu more commonly, uh, or avian influenza, is a highly infectious viral disease that primarily affects birds, uh, but does include domestic poultry such as chickens, turkeys, ducks, uh, geese, in uh, other types of wild, large birds. Um, the avian flu viruses are really classified into two different subtypes based on their surface proteins. So you have H5N1, and then you have H7N9. Uh, now, avian flu, it can infect humans who come into contact, close contact with infected birds or contaminated surfaces. Uh, and when it infects humans, it, it can cause a range of respiratory symptoms Uh, That can be mild or severe, but can also include pneumonia and death. Um, So it's a very problematic flu virus uh, that uh, fortunately for us right now is rare.
1: So is uh, this is something that we shouldn't have to worry too much about other than grocery store issues?
3: Yeah, so right now I think most of the risk of avian flu is going to be to individuals working in in large sort of uh, chicken or poultry farms. That's why you hear a lot about this coming over from from Asia uh, where they do occasionally – uh, have an outbreak which leads to human fatalities because they have so many uh, farms over there dealing with domestic poultry. So for the everyday person right now in the United States, we, we don't have to worry about avian flu, but from a scientific perspective, uh, and for someone like me in epidemiology, it is a, a virus that we have seen can jump into humans. Uh, it just is not very good at transmitting human to human yet. So it's definitely one that we're watching, but is not cause for panic right now.
1: On the theme of pandemics, uh, there is a hit HBO show, The Last of Us, uh, that posits about a fungal pandemic, uh, or at least the possibility of it. Uh, It's a mega hit and has a lot of people asking a fundamental question. And Chad, I'm going to ask you this one too. How worried should we be about should we be about a fungal pandemic?
3: Yeah, so this is a really interesting question and uh, probably a rare instance where pop culture sort of does actually get it right. So uh, the fungus uh, featured in, in the Last of Us video game and the TV show is actually called cordyceps, and it is a real fungus, and it does, in fact, infect and take over certain types of insects in order to sort of reproduce and survive. Um, That said, uh, the cordyceps fungus isn't known to infect mammals or in our case, humans. Uh, So I think for now we can rest easy uh, knowing that a zombie apocalypse isn't in sight due to cordyceps or, or can be caused by at least this fungus. Um, Instead, we do have other fungi that infect humans, in particular, Candida auris is one that uh, is starting to to really cause problems in healthcare, Um, and that one is particularly troubling because uh, it's resistant to most antifungals that we would use in hospitals and healthcare. So, Candida auris is probably the one that uh, is is most dangerous to humans, though that won't zombify us.
1: I, I, you just answered the question, so we're not likely to become uh, mushroom <laughs> zombies anytime soon.
3: Not, not yet. Not yet.
1: Our director Isabella de Silva joins us now with questions for our experts from our listeners. Mr. Postman, Isabella, what do we have today?
0: Clive in New York City. I am 55 years old with high blood pressure. I have been vaccinated for COVID with three boosters. My last one in April 2022. Do I need to get an updated COVID booster
1: shot, Doctor Knight? Uh, this is actually a very frequent. Many of us are wondering how many shots do we get anymore.
4: Yeah, yeah, we are, and and because as we are constantly learning, some of these things have changed. Right, we've had a lot of knowledge and research that's been going on through the pandemic, so we had to adjust accordingly. So I want to come in. Clive on getting his vaccines. That's excellent. It's a great place to start. Right now, the, the CDC, which we use for these guidelines, has and I've actually got some nice tools on their website that you can use. You can plug in your age, you can talk about your immunocompromised things like that. And the vaccines are available to everyone six months and older. So as far as the booster goes, so we recommend the, the primary set of vaccines for everyone to start. So that's the Moderna, the Booster, these that we talked about, which is a, a two part series. So as far as booster goes, we recommend that everyone get the, a bivalent vaccine. So we've talked about this on the show before too, but the bivalent vaccine is more directed to some of those more common variants that we're seeing recently. So if you've had an updated bivalent vaccine within the past two months, then you're good. If you've not had that bivalent vaccine within the past two months, we recommend that you get that. If you've had a COVID in- infection, of course, we also want to make that caveat too, that we want to wait a few months until after re- infection resolves before getting a vaccine.
1: Isabella, what else do we have?
0: Cynthia in Miami. If you didn't receive the HPV vaccine in college, will it work as an adult?
1: Chad, this is an interesting question. Um, I know that's supposedly recommended uh, in your teen years, but can you help answer the question for Cynthia?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, actually, the HPV vaccine is recommended for people up to age 45, uh, even uh, past the point of the start of sexual activity. So uh, generally it's 45 because uh, the average age of cervical cancer diagnosis is around 50. Uh, but we do recommend that individuals even after college, go ahead and get it because uh, in addition to, to helping prevent HPV, right? We give the vaccine to to hopefully prevent cases of cervical uh, cancer, which do, do again occur around 50. So uh, after the age of 45, Uh, the, the research is a little more limited on whether or not there's a benefit of the HPV vaccine being administered that late, but certainly up to age 45, we know it
1: still works. Isabella, what else was in that bag?
0: Jorge is an intern in New York city. I saw the headline that Bruce Willis's diagnosis is frontotemporal dementia. What is that? And how is it different than Alzheimer's?
1: Dr. Draskowski, lots of headlines on Bruce Willis and his now what was initially called an aphasia now clearly specified as a type of dementia, frontal temporal dementia. Can you tell us what is that dementia and how is that different from Alzheimer's disease?
2: Yeah. So, first of all, I'd like to say... uh, uh, best thoughts and prayers to uh, the Willis Mr. Willis's family. Uh, this is not an easy thing to go through, but basically what this is is there's four lobes of the brain as background: frontal, temporal, occipital, and parietal lobes. Those are the four major uh, lobes of the brain. And what this unfortunate disease is a degeneration of the functional unit of the brain or, or the neurons, uh, that that basically die away. It's a progressive disease that produces dementia over time, and it has a specific set of um, it has a specific set of symptoms related to it, and that's that's apathy, compulsivity, um, uh, oral fixations, executive dysfunction in particular. So people can't plan out their day, and they have trouble uh, keeping schedules, that kind of thing. Uh, it's the second most common uh, cause of dementia to Alzheimer's disease, which is more of an uh, 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 if in a in a in a way to think about it, it's more of a a diffuse process of the brain and hits all all the lobes of the brain to some degree or another, whereas this one is more concentrated in the frontal and temporal lobe, first described in the late eighteen hundreds. So it's been around a long time. Unfortunately there's not a lot of uh, there's really no way to uh, cure it but we do manage the symptoms of it, with particularly anxieties and depression and those kind of things uh, it's very helpful to do that for the family and for the patient to have the best quality of life as this unfortunately relentless disease progresses over time so n-
1: not a good thing to have but uh
2: um all the best to the Willis family
1: and uh, we all second that from from this show uh, and up next, there are new guidelines by the American Academy of Pediatrics for Managing Obesity that are getting a lot of attention. Dr. Madeline Joseph joins us to explain. But first, I want to thank our incredible set of guests uh, that have guided us today through the February health headlines. Dr. Dacre Knight, uh, practicing in Turnus at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, and head of the Ellers danlos Clinic there. Dr. Joseph Draskowski, he is a professor of neurology and a practicing neurologist at Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. And Chad Nielsen, he is director of accreditation and infection prevention at the University of Florida Health Jacksonville. We'll be right back. I'm dr joe Servan, and this is what's health got to do with it whether we choose to acknowledge it or not obesity is a huge problem in the u.s and this is especially true in kids roughly one in five children in the united states between the ages of two and nineteen is affected by obesity meaning they have a body mass index or bmi at or above the 95th percentile for their age and sex based on CDC growth charts. Childhood obesity also seems to have increased during the COVID-19 pandemic. Though mounting evidence suggests that people can be healthy at any weight if they do enough physical activity, obesity in children does carry both immediate and long-term risks. Children and adults with obesity can be metabolically healthy meaning that they may have normal blood sugar, cholesterol, blood pressure, and waist circumference. However, we're seeing more children diagnosed with type two diabetes, high cholesterol, and high blood pressure. And obesity is a strong risk factor for all of these conditions, both in childhood and adolescence, and later in adulthood. As a result, the American Academy of Pediatrics released new guidelines on childhood obesity the first in 15 years that moves away from watchful waiting or delaying treatment to see if children outgrow obesity to something much more aggressive. Our next guest contributed to this work, and she joins us now to talk about this. Dr. Madeline Joseph is professor of emergency medicine and pediatrics, medical director for the UF Pediatric Weight Management Center here at the UF College of Medicine in Jacksonville. Dr. Joseph, welcome to our program.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: Now, I know I mentioned this in our introduction, but let me just kind of really double down on this. How is pediatric obesity defined?
5: So it is defined by the BMI, uh, body mass index, which is above the 95th percentile uh, for age uh, and gender. How
1: common is pediatric obesity?
5: Unfortunately, it's very common. So uh, it is one in five uh, children or teens are impacted by this disease. And when we want to give it a number, 14.7 million children and teens are impacted by this disease in our country.
1: Wow. Let me ask just a, a quick question before I leave the definition. You know, I was talking uh, with others and someone brought up the point that BMI can sometimes be a very clunky uh, uh, value or metric. It, I know that's how it's defined, but does that have any impact on how, you know, how, how this definition has come to kind of have so many people diagnosed with it?
5: Uh, absolutely so uh, bmi is linked uh, to adiposity uh, you know meaning the percentage of fat in our uh, body on the other hand uh, there is limitation to it uh, since uh, you know some of the athletes that may have a um, big muscle mass they may their bmi may be high uh, but it is uh, the tool uh, that we have at this point, uh, but I can tell you in our clinic, uh, we do use a scale that actually looks at not just the BMI, uh, you know, for children, but also uh, their muscle mass uh, as well as the fat percentage of their body. So that really gives you a little bit more accurate uh, description of what is happening in the body. But The literature is using the BMI for all these studies uh, because, you know, they felt like it's a good screening tool. And for the most part, it is associated with some of the other tools that we have, uh, like the DEXA scan or or others that tells us about the adiposity.
1: So when you were talking about all those children that are diagnosed with uh, pediatric obesity, is that all kids or are there certain demographic groups that are more impacted than others?
5: And that's a great question. Uh, so in general, uh, one out of five uh, child or, or adolescent is impacted by obesity. But if you want to look at, you know, some of the racial or ethnic groups, uh, uh, 26% uh, uh, of Hispanic children are impacted by obesity and 25 percent of black children are impacted by obesity uh, in comparison to 16.6 percent of non-Hispanic white children. Uh, but I, I do want to cautious us, you know, this is not necessarily related uh, to race because race uh, is not a biological, you know, proxy for disease, but it is due to the, uh, you know, probably access to care, uh, access to healthy food, access to parks where the kids can play uh, and be physically active uh, in a safe uh, manner, and, and also the toxic, uh, uh, toxic stress. Uh, so children who are experiencing adversity, uh, there's changes in their hormones that regulate weight Uh, and and so we really have to look at like all these factors that really contribute to increase the prevalence of obesity in certain uh, racial or ethnic groups. How
1: do these new guidelines differ from the past ones? I mentioned already that these are much more aggressive but can you walk us through uh, some of the high points of those guidelines?
5: Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to state, you know, when you say aggressive, uh, I I just want to maybe comment on that because I do see it in in social media. It is not aggressive. It is really a shift uh, from going from watchful waiting, where we hope that the child that's uh, struggling with obesity will outgrow it. But but truly, the evidence are telling us uh, that Uh, uh, children, specifically teenagers, who are struggling with obesity, they're going into adulthood uh, with obesity. So that's really not going away. And so the watchful waiting that hoping things are going to get better on its own is really not working. Uh, You know, when we say aggressive, it's really not aggressive, but it's actually paying attention to it. And the first thing uh, the guideline actually recommends is intensive behavior health. -hmm. And lifestyle treatment, and that actually indicates almost 26 hours of intense one-on-one, you know, with the child, with the family, uh, for behavior modification. So that's, so you were not jumping into surgery or medications, you know, right away. Uh, And and so that's probably the biggest difference between the old guidelines in 2007 and the current guidelines is really going away from the watchful waiting. Uh, to, you know, intervening uh, early. Uh, and I can tell you in our clinic, unfortunately, we see 6 year old 7 year old with prediabetes. Uh, and so these type of complications of obesity are happening at such an early age. And therefore, the intervention is really critical.
1: So when we're talking about those interventions, uh, we're talking about medicines and surgery, and we'll get into it in a moment uh, specifically. What's the youngest age that one can consider undertaking something like uh, medications and or bariatric surgery? What's the youngest age that one could uh, actually have that offered?
5: And that's a great question. And I love how you say it, consider Uh, Because, you know, it is really the guidelines wants to empower the the family to talk with their pediatricians about all the options. And as I mentioned before, uh, the intensive behavior, health uh, and lifestyle, you know, in addition uh, to, um, you know, other modality, looking at physical activity and nutrition, that's the core and then you know at 12 you could consider medications uh, and at 13 you could consider you know surgery but there is really specific you know and ins- you know guidelines and discussions that have to happen with the you know family when these considerations are taken
1: okay now how do the traditional measures such as diet and exercise how do they fit within these Uh, is it part of every uh, all children that that's always recommended uh, that they all under uh, that they always focus on that as well how how do they fit into all of this
5: so the nutrition you know appropriate nutrition and physical activity and exercise you know those are cornerstone uh, for obesity prevention Uh, but they're also part of the treatment Uh, but when you're really uh, suffering from the disease of obesity those two measures are not necessarily uh, you know uh, alone are sufficient you know otherwise why would why would you think we have almost 15 million children struggling you know with this disease if it's just a matter of like nutrition and exercise uh, you know we if we look at uh, you know the environment we're in uh, I mean, including in our own city, uh, there's really not a lot of places to walk, you know, unless you go to the beach. But, you know, the, the way uh, the environment around us, you know, is what we call obesogenic, meaning um, it is almost built to cause obesity. And and so we really have to look at, uh, you know, many measures in the environment, you uh, you know, to counter obesity, some of the medications patients take, uh, like let's say, uh, asthmatics, they uh, sometimes when they have asthma exacerbation, they need uh, steroids. Well, steroids cause weight gain, uh, and, and so managing the asthma more appropriately and not needing to be on steroids too many times, you know, in year in the year could help. Uh, you know prevent obesity so we really need to look at it from a holistic you know point of view uh, yeah, just like we do with other diseases like with asthma we look at like the environment uh, we look at medications uh, you know the same thing should be done you know with the obesity as well
1: there has become a somewhat of a phenomenon certainly in adults with uh, new weight loss drugs, uh, particularly semaglutide, uh, which is a, an injection that is now done for weight loss. And it's, it seems like it's become somewhat of a weight loss phenomenon, uh, particularly because of TikTok and social, other social media outlets. What do we know about using something like this in kids?
5: Uh, I mean, obviously, there is room for you know medications, uh, especially if the child uh, has severe obesity. So not just obesity, but severe obesity, m- meaning like their BMI more than thirty percent or more than the hundred twenty percent of the ninety fifth percentile, you know, for their age and uh, gender. Uh, and so it, it's for severe obesity. And uh, there's one study that was published last year. Uh, that looked at using it uh, in the younger children over 12. Uh, And it did show, you know, compared to intensive lifestyle, you know, changes that the BMI actually changed uh, 16% uh, in the semaglutide versus only 0.6% in the placebo uh, group. Um so it is showing you know good results, but you have to understand you know a couple of things. I mean one, when we start medication because obesity is a chronic disease, you're really committing you know that patient to being on this medication like you know for for a long time. And so it's really critical that you know, even if we started medication that, we continue the other modality that we know it works like the intensive behavior health and lifestyle modification and motivational interviewing uh you know as well where uh, the the counseling is actually to identify and reinforce the person's own motivation to change Uh, and so we are not telling people what to do or the patient what to do but we're actually looking at what motivates that person to make a change and building you know on that and that's really actually very powerful and so again the medication does have a role but would be with severe obesity and with other modality of obesity treatment uh, because all medications have side effects. Uh, so even with the semaglutide, 4% uh, of the patients that were treated develop uh, gallbladder stones. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, you know, compared to zero in the placebo group. So we, we you know, we have to be careful, uh, you know, as we prescribe these medications.
1: Let me ask on the other side of this, bariatric surgery, um, uh, you just talked about having behavior modification and other uh, aspects that need to be done in general. How does bariatric surgery in kids work? Uh, do you have to have an entire program around them so that everything else is changed as well in addition to the operation? Yeah,
5: uh, you know, absolutely. And, and from my perspective, I mean, I think you should have a medical weight management uh, first uh you, you know implement those uh, intensive uh, behavior health and lifestyle modification using motivational interviewing uh and and perhaps even medications you know before committing to surgery and and surgery is really it is a, a life saving uh, for a specific group of children you know who are struggling, who are suffering from severe obesity like yeah, if their BMI is more than thirty-five uh, percent, or hundred and twenty, you know, to hundred and forty percent of the ninety-fifth percentile, plus, you know, other complications like they're already pre-diabetic or diabetic, they already have high blood pressure, uh, they're struggling with sleep apnea or suffering from obstructive sleep apnea. So you're not going to do surgery on a healthy individual. You're gonna, you know, it's obesity plus. Um, you know s- some of these complications, or if the obesity is, you know, above forty percent, um, and unfortunately, you know, I have a fourteen-year-old, uh, you know, in our clinic that's almost four hundred pounds, uh, and so and and is on high blood pressure medication, wow. and so, so in, in this case, what do you do? Do you just wash the kid? you know, the child getting sicker and sicker, or do you at least, uh, you know, offer some sort of treatment?
1: No, I get it when you, when you describe it like that in our final moment, Dr. Joseph, uh, what message do you want to make sure that our listeners take away from our discussion and these new guidelines, uh, regarding pediatric obesity? What message do you want to make sure people take away from all of this?
5: I just want to emphasize that there's so much stigma uh, against, you know, people with obesity and children with obesity, and and this could be lifelong. And so the good news is, you know, we do have options, you know, for treatments that are effective that we can offer families. And, and I just want to empower the families uh, to, you know, feel free to ask your pediatricians uh, about what treatment. Is available and what is best for my child, and and so it's a uh, it's a chronic disease, but we can treat it. Uh, and I do want to uh, say there's a really great resource uh, for uh, parents. Uh, it's the AAP American Academy of Pediatric Healthy Children Okay. Uh, And there's really many, much information uh, that uh, would be useful for parents of children who are suffering from obesity.
1: Dr. Joseph, I want to thank you so much uh, for coming on our program and talking to all of us about such a huge and important topic. Uh, We really appreciate it.
5: Thank you so much for having me.
1: It's been our pleasure. We've been talking to Dr. Madeline Joseph. She's professor of emergency medicine and pediatrics and the medical director for the UF Pediatric Weight Management Center here at UF Jacksonville. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckin. Heather Schatz is our senior producer. Brendan Rivers is our producer. Isabella DeSova is our director. Next week's program is a look at original reporting on getting rid of tattoos for victims of sex trafficking. If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362 Email us at health at wjct.org or tweet me at jservin. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do with It on WJCT News 899 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening and stay in touch.
0: In part by Eli Lilly and Company, is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at ThinkMigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at American Brain Foundation. Org. and by The Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find
5: cures, and save lives. Visit epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today.